Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, Old Sports, and welcome back to the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. My name, if you, as you would know, if you've listened in the past, is Dan Newman, and I am joined by my brother, co-host, Andrew Newman, and we would like to thank you for once again joining us here on the Hello Old Sports podcast. Andrew, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Dan. First, it's been it's a lot cooler today, at least where I live. It's been pretty hot the last few uh, days. Um, so it's kind of a nice reminder here as we are on the, the cusp of football season. It kind of feels a little appropriate from a weather standpoint that it's 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 slightly cooler out today. and. Uh, the fall is approaching. Hopefully not too fast, but um, puts me in a football mood, although truthfully, I'm not all that far off from a football mood most of the time. <laughs> yeah, you definitely football is definitely your favorite. And I think I probably lean lean slightly baseball. And then uh, I don't know whether basketball or football would be second for me. I think it sometimes depends on the time of the year and the type of the mood that I'm in. But yes, fall is upon us. Football season is upon us. This episode will probably drop sometime in mid to late September. We'll be well into the football season. So we're going to talk tonight about expansion teams and rival leagues in the world of the National Football League and in the world of professional football. We did this same type of episode, I guess, God, going back almost over a year and a half ago now about basketball. And we talked about the ABA and some of the other expansion basketball leagues, rival basketball leagues uh, over the last 75 years or so. And so we want to do the same thing tonight with football, and we hope that you enjoy it. Before we get started with that, first of all, we want to, as always, encourage you to like us, follow us on your podcast app of choice. Give us a nice five-star rating if you like what you hear. Tell us what you like about the show. Tell us what you don't like about the show, as if there could any possibly be anything that you wouldn't like about our show here. You can email the show, helloldsports at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you because otherwise all we get in that email address is... Uh, advertisements for discount shoes, which is sort of a <laughs> bummer to sort through when I check it every couple of days. Follow us on Facebook. Hello, old sports podcast. And just, you know, let us know what you think about the show. If you have any ideas for show topics, anything that you think you would like us to know before we start, I also want to talk about our newest sponsor here on the sports history network. And that is home field, a premium collegiate apparel brand out of Indianapolis, incredibly comfortable, officially licensed apparel with vintage college designs. 
They have over 150 plus colleges available now and are always adding more. What Homefield does is they dig through the archives and history of your favorite school, your alma mater, or just the school you root for, to find unique logos, mascots, and moments to make thoughtful designs for your school, college, or university. As you can see, I, as Andrew can see, and as the rest of you can imagine, I am wearing my one of my alma maters, my graduate school alma mater, Georgetown University Hoya, with the picture of the Georgetown University mascot, Jack the Bulldog, the Georgetown University Bulldog with a sort of like an 80s type design of his face and then Hoya's down the side of the left side of the shirt. I've worn it a couple times since I got it in the mail a few weeks ago. It's comfortable. It looks good. It helps me support one of my alma maters. So I really like it very much and go check, check them out. And you can really see a lot of, uh, a lot of cool designs they have, and they're always adding new schools every day or two. You can check them out at homefieldapparel.com. And that reads just as it sounds like it would. And new customers can get 15% off their first purchase from home field with code sports history. That's all one word sports history at checkout at homefieldapparel.com. Just a way to thank you for being a fan of hello old sports and of the entire sports history network. And I very much have enjoyed my Georgetown Hoya shirt over the last couple of weeks. All right. So tonight's topic is football leagues and specifically rival leagues to the NFL that have cropped up over the NFL's 100 year history. And I think the thing I would say sort of to start off, Andrew, is that in researching this, there definitely was more than there were for the NBA. There were a lot of different disparate places to go with all this. Yeah, there is. First of all, there's a lot of leagues named the American Football League. Yes. Uh, You'd like them to have been a little more. I guess I could criticize them, but the one that worked was the fourth one. So (laughs) I can't criticize their lack of uh, creativity in that regard because they were plenty creative in other regards. You know, I kind of broke it into like pre-NFL leagues, sort of concurrent to the NFL, and then sort of the modern era NFL ones, um, or modern era leagues sort of post the Super Bowl era, really, once the NFL was a juggernaut. The ones that sort of just showed up and never actually caught on, or if they caught on, they caught on for a very brief period of time. I will tell you also, the stuff I'm most excited to talk about, there were a lot of stories at the end of the World Football League. <laughs> there were some. Do you know about some of this? You know, I there read a, some good stuff about the World Football League. So why don't we start? Uh, we talked about this. We did uh, back in 2020. We did an episode about 1920 in sports. I think it was actually a two parter. And one of the things that we talked a lot about was the birth of the American Professional Football Association, the APFA, which is the forerunner to the modern NFL, changed its name to the NFL in 1922. 
But before that, sort of, as you alluded to, Andrew, there were a number of, I don't even know if you'd want to call them leagues, but there were sort of loose confederations of teams, particularly in the Midwest, Ohio-ish type area throughout the 19-teens. Yeah, well, actually, you can even start, you know, before that. I had listed really as the first league that had any kind of, no matter how liberal you want to be with the term league, the, the earliest one would be the Western Professional Football Circuit in 1892. And this was uh, the first professional game or game that included professionals was Allegheny Athletic Club versus Pittsburgh Athletic Club. And Allegheny had paid William Heffelfinger $500 to play in that game, and Allegheny won four to nothing. And that was the first game where anybody was uh, compensated, or at least that any, that's been discovered so far. It says the AAA won the game four to nothing when Heffelfinger picked up a P- Pittsburgh fumble and ran 35 yards for a touchdown. Yeah, and that was Pudge Heffelfinger, uh, who was that was his nickname, and he was a Yale man, and he is widely considered by historians as the first professional football player in NFL history. And that sort of started the ball rolling. Pittsburgh then the next year signed a player to a, a, a contract. A few years later, in that same region, the guy named John Brellier or Brellier became the first player to openly turn pro. So those other contracts had been a little hush hush. And it said he accepted $10 in expenses to pay for the Latrobe YMCA against the Jeanette Athletic Club. So these are the very early teams. It says the, then in 1896, the Allegheny Athletic Association, first completely professional team for its abbreviated two game season. And then the next year, Latrobe was the first team to be fully professional for an entire year. So we talked about the 1869 Reds on an episode a few weeks ago, the Red Stockings, excuse me, the team that was the first fully professional team in 1869 in baseball. And here you have in 1897, uh, you have Latrobe is really the first professional, fully professional team to play in a you know full season. All right. Um, So kind of going along the same, just sort of wrapping up the uh, Western professional football circuit uh, in Pennsylvania, talks about in 1899 and the Cardinals. What we know is this the today, the Arizona Cardinals can trace back as far as 1899. uh, Chris O'Brien played under uh, formed a team that played under the name Morgan Athletic Club on the south side of Chicago team later became known as the Normals, then the Racine Cardinals, the Chicago Cardinals, the St. Louis Cardinals, and then the Phoenix Cardinals, and now the Arizona Cardinals. And then in 1900, in that same league, uh, William Temple becomes the owner. It says he took over the payments for the Duquesne Country and Athletic Club, which made him the first uh, known individual club owner, as opposed to like an athletic club with dues and things like that. Now, that's not the same Temple who came up with the Temple Cup for the 1890s baseball championship, is he? I don't believe so. I can check that real quick. Let's see. Temple Cup uh, history. William Chase Temple. Uh, Maybe it is. Wow. 
He became the first solo. Yeah, it's the same guy. Same guy. First solo owner of a professional football team in 1898. Although this thing I have here says 1900. And he established the Temple Cup uh, in whatever year, 1894. So a big man about sports in the late 1800s. And we'll talk more in a little bit about these guys who were involved in multiple sports and kind of played a role in the infancy or at least in the earlier days of multiple sports at once. Cause you don't really see that as much anymore. Mm-hmm. So about 1902, things kind of shift to the Ohio league, which I think is where you probably are going to have some stuff, things that sort of, it's not a big jump from Western Pennsylvania into Ohio. And it's kind of funny. We're talking about like a football balance of power in that area. And still to this day, it's obviously been very one-sided for 50 years, but the Browns Steelers kind of rivalry uh, mm-hmm. still exists today. It goes, you know, that goes back pretty far in, in terms of football, rather there was a, a bunch of different teams claimed championships, but, in the early, you know, right around the turn of the century, sort of the balance of power shifted to this Ohio, which was getting all the top, what passed for top players, teams like the Massillon Tiger, teams in Akron, uh, Illyria, Canton, the Dayton Triangles eventually. So that was sort of, I think a lot of people recognize that as the first fully organized professional league Especially because of a lot of those teams end up being present in 1920 when they form the APFA, which later becomes the NFL. A lot mm-hmm. of those teams. And Jim Thorpe also sort of comes to prominence during those years in the Ohio League in the 19-teens. He, he joins the Canton Bulldogs in 1915, and it's Thorpe's presence that it in large part, not exclusively, that in large part kind of helps these teams coalesce into a league in the early 1920s. Yeah, it says 1913, Jim Thorpe, uh, former football and track star. At the, and I'm reading a, and the NFL has a pretty good chronology up um, on their, I think it's their Hall of Fame website. It is the, well, it's, I guess it's, it's the Pro Football Hall of Fame website. Now, after 1920 they really don't cover anything else except the afl but early on they're they're covering a lot of the i mean the nfl and the afl but they don't cover a lot of the middle stuff he played for the pine village jim thorpe played for the pine village pros in indiana and then eventually by 1915 he's been uh, he's on canton which has a rivalry sort of one of the big early rivalries between massillon and canton in the uh Mid-teens, those are sort of the two teams that kind of dominate. And I think it's important to, you know, in the mid-teens, professional baseball to some degree resembles what we consider professional baseball today. I guess in a lot of ways it does. There's, you know, a lot of the teams are still familiar. There's the American League, there's the National League. There's a season that's roughly the same length, you know, and and stadiums and, and things like that. Pro football in 1915 is really barely recognizable as professional and barely recognizable as football. I think we have to, you know, be very clear about what we're talking about when we're talking about these quote unquote pro football teams in 1913. I think throughout even into the 20s, you really wouldn't recognize it as football. And Obviously, there's no one specific moment where you look at it and say, "Okay, here's where it became 
recognizable as the game that we know today. It happens in fits and starts, but you're right. The the pre-1920 and then even for several years after that, it's a very different game, different rules as far as passing, size of the ball, obviously size of the rosters, all that type of thing is very different. But from a league point of view, it's starting to coalesce. And I should note also that the the PFRA, the Professional Football Researchers Association, which I'm a member on, has done a tremendous amount of work and a tremendous job looking at these sort of 19 teens teams and players and, you know, everything from re- season recaps to naming all pro teams and all decade teams for the whole decade or at least the last half of the decade. I'm looking at a an article from about six, seven years ago uh, about the 1915 Oswego Shakespeare's who won in the New York based professional football league in 1915. So if you remember, Shakespeare was a co-owner of that team. (laughs) Wasn't that long ago. It's close, but it wasn't that long ago. I, so I recommend if you're a PFRA member, the, the newsletter, the, the periodical, the coffin corner has a lot of good stuff. If you want to learn more about all these sort of early days, do you want to move on to the twenties? Yeah, and I love that as a part of this show. Should we move on to the twenties? Um, <laughs> so, one thing I wanted to talk about while we're in the Ohio League, just one thing. So they they lose a lot of teams to the the APFA slash NFL, whatever. They revived the league a couple of times in the in twenty five to twenty nine, but the depression wipes it out. So they have bad timing with this. The depression wipes it out. And then they have the Ohio Professional Football League in 1941, which, as you can guess, lasted a year. Um, <laughs> five teams in the league, the Dayton Merchants, the Columbus Avondales, the Middletown Merchants, the Dayton Dakotas, and the Cincinnati Pepsi Colas. <laughs> so they're wiped out. And then the only other sort of league from the teens that I wanted to just mention really quick. There was also the New York Pro Football League, even though the Ohio League was considered sort of the top league, the New York Pro Football League, which really meant Western New York, Rochester, Buffalo. That was the team that the Oswego Shakespeare's were in in 1915 that this article is written about. It says the NYPFL is believed to have been the first professional team to use a playoff format as opposed to just a single game championship. And then it just, you know, it goes into talk to some of the teams. It says generally the championship games were played on Thanksgiving. So just kind of an interesting little note is the history of professional football on Thanksgiving, uh, you know, with really early evidence of that in terms of a championship game in that level. But yes, we can zoom forward to the 1920s in professional football. So we don't have to spend too, too much time on this because we talk about it quite a bit in our 1920 episodes. If you want to know more, check that out. But the APFA forms in 1920 with 14 teams, Akron Pros, Buffalo All-Americans, Canton Bulldogs, Chicago Cardinals, which, as you mentioned, are the forerunner to the Phoenix and now Arizona Cardinals, Chicago Tigers, Cleveland Tigers, Columbus Panhandles, Dayton Triangles, Decatur Staley's, who are the forerunner of the Chicago Bears, Detroit Heralds, Hammond Pros, Muncie Flyers, Rochester Jeffersons, and the Rock Island Independents, who are a team, I believe mostly, um, maybe they're not a team mostly of Native Americans. I know that Thorpe plays on them at one point, so I thought maybe they were mostly a Native American team, but I guess I, I may not be 
entirely accurate with that one. So we don't need to go through all of the machinations and the expansion of the team. Rest assured that basically throughout the 20s, that there's teams leaving and exiting the league sort of nonstop. So I don't think we probably don't need to get too much into expansion teams being added until the league is kind of something that we would recognize. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with that. I mean, it's, it's confusing. It's confusing to me that the big 1922, the league becomes the NFL and the Staley's become the bears. That to me is a big, uh, you know, the transition point when that happens. Yeah, and I think you, some of the long-standing teams, you've got the Giants join in what, 25? 25 is the Giants, yeah. And I think the Packers join in what, 22, 23? Let me check. I'm the just gonna, pa- I'm gonna pull I'm gonna pull up the standings for the years and kind of just do it that way. So in nineteen twenty-two, you had like 30 teams, which it's insane how many teams there were in nineteen twenty-two, the Racine Legion. Packers were in the league in twenty-two. 23 20 and the Giants first year was 25. So by by already by the by the mid 20s you got the Packers, you got the Giants, you got the, the Bears, you got the Cardinals and I think the Detroit Lions the Detroit Lions don't come in until 1930 as the Portsmouth Spartans. I don't know when the Eagles come in. I think they're probably there's a team named the Detroit Panthers in 25. Um, I feel like the Eagles were in the 30s. God, there were a lot of teams in this league at certain points. And the uh, Eagles came in as something else originally also, I believe. Were they the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets for a couple of years? So 27 is an interesting year. The league goes from in 26, there's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. The over 20 teams in 26. And, you know, you still have some teams who played four games versus teams who played 12 or 13 by 27 they're down to one two three four five six seven eight nine ten they're down to 12 teams and outside of buffalo everybody plays at least nine games so it's a lot more of a balanced schedule by 1927 although still a way to go and the champions in 27 are the Giants. Providence Steamroller. Nope. And nope. No? Nope. 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 The Giants. Oh, I'm sorry. Who? The, the, the Giants lit up like six. That was the year the Giants lit up like 12 points the whole year in 1927. Oh, that's right. Yeah. What, what Providence must have been the year before then, I guess. 26 was. Providence was the following year. Providence was 28. 28. Okay. And what's and the reason that I mentioned that is because that was the last year the team that is now no longer in the league won a championship. Every every championship after that is from a team that has a descendant in the modern day National Football League. So then we the first league we really want to talk about is 1925 and. This is the first incarnation of the American Football League. And it's really, I don't know if you saw this in your research, it's really founded because of one guy Red who's Grange. Red Grange. Yeah. Red Grange, who sort of like Babe Ruth, or um, yeah, I guess Babe Ruth is probably the best analogy. 
he's a guy who really wants to go out on his own. And so he and his agent, who is known as CC Pyle, with the CC standing for cash and carry, they get a five-year lease for Yankee Stadium. And they want to use this five-year lease for Yankee Stadium as a way to get a team in the Bronx at Yankee Stadium to join the NFL. And they meet with Tim Mara, the owner of the New York Giants. And Mara essentially says, heck no, I don't want to allow this. And that's kind of where the story gets interesting and where the AFL starts. And it's amazing. Tim Mara seems to play a role in the formation of these first couple of AFLs and that they're formed kind of as a way to spite him. (laughs) Well, and there's a lot of things going on with baseball ties and stadiums, even though the, the football giants never shared ownership with the baseball giants, they played in the same stadium. And, you know, I think for a lot of people at this point, the oldest Yankee, the oldest like current New York football giants fan goes like oh i go way back i remember them playing at yankee stadium which they did for 18 years or 17 i guess for 30 years they played at the polo grounds they were kind of synonymous with the giants for a long time uh the baseball giants obviously they shared a name sometimes i think they got together for dinner they would uh you know it, it was in a lot of ways the same so you saw baseball teams, football, you saw football teams pop up, the Brooklyn Dodgers. There were several different versions of the New York Yankees at different points. So, you know, you can't underestimate, especially in New York, the role that all that played in it. So at an NFL owners meeting in February of 1926, Pyle, who has secured a lease, a five-year lease on Yankee Stadium covering, covering every Sunday and holiday from October 15th to December 31st. He says, I have the biggest star in football and I have a lease on the biggest stadium in the country and I am coming into your league, whether you like it or not. And some of the owners are excited about this, but Tim Mara very much is not. He says, should a player and his representative be able to tell the owners how to run their business? Would the owners also allow the next great player to just invade another team's turf? And Joe Carr, who is the I don't think the word is commissioner at this point. I think he's probably just considered league president. Joe Carr supports Mara and Mara and Mara and Pyle don't like each other personally. Pyle Mara finds Pyle obnoxious from the day they first meet. Mara reportedly almost takes a swing at Pyle, who stalked out of the meeting, even more determined to go forward with his team. And he says to Grange, no blasted Irishman is going to keep me out of New York. And this leads to the formation of the very first American Football League, which begins play in 1926 with... And ends play in 1926 as well. So these are the teams, the Philadelphia Quakers, New York Yankees, Cleveland Panthers, the Los Angeles Wildcats, and we'll talk a little bit more about them in a second, Boston Bulldogs, the Rock Island Independents, who had left the NFL and now return to they return. um, They come back into existence to join this first version of the AFL, the Brooklyn Horsemen and the Newark Bears. 
So three of these teams, if you count Newark, are part of the metropolitan New York area. This is much more sort of an East Coast based league. There's some teams further out, but Boston, Brooklyn, Newark, New York, Philly, Philly. Yeah, exactly. One of the most interesting teams is the Los Angeles Wildcats, who, despite the name, never play anywhere near the city of Los Angeles. They are a showcase for a number of players who had been who had played on the West Coast, who had gone to college on the West Coast. And they think that this will be a way to sort of represent the West Coast, but they never play and they never have any intention of playing on the West Coast. They play all of their games at the other team. But nonetheless, they are the first uh, professional football team with a name of or first team in any sport, I guess, with a name of Los Angeles. But they let the name not fool you. They never play anywhere near Los Angeles. Yeah, and the the demise of the league is about as uninteresting as you would expect. You know, it was it would be for the reasons you would expect. There's most of the teams aren't attracting any kind of following. They're not able to keep playing throughout the year. I think by the end of the year, there was what four teams operating. I think um, yeah, four teams remained. Yeah, so that was, you know, it was kind of a league that was dead on arrival. I mean, the NFL was barely getting by at this point, let alone rival leagues. So the Yankees and the Quakers were the only ones who consistently drew large crowds. Yankees went on a barnstorming tour. The Quakers attempted to arrange a challenge game between the champions of two leagues. And after the top six NFL teams all declined that challenge, the Giants played them. Did you have anything on this? I did not. The, the, the seventh I mean, place, the seventh place Giants did play Philadelphia. <clears throat> this Wikipedia article says the Quakers' hopes for both football credibility and a financial windfall evaporated as the game was played in a blustery snowstorm. Only five thousand, which is not a bad house. Five thousand fans witnessed the Giants beat the AFL champions thirty-one to nothing. So the seventh place team, you had, you know how hard it was to score 31 points in an NFL game back then. <laughs> uh, so it said the same day, the Chicago Bulls and the New York Yankees met in a football game um, <laughs> for the last American football league game in Comiskey Park. The Yankees won seven, three and the league ceased to exist. So that was pretty much the end of the 1926 AFL. Yes. And so Grange returns to the NFL. He returns to the Chicago Bears after I think I think he stops a couple other places before he kind of settles in with the Bears. But had this league succeeded, you may not have known as much of the NFL legend of Red Grange, who ended up leading the Bears. Uh, He he joins them in 29 and plays with them all the way to until 34. So six more seasons wins the two NFL titles in 32 and 33. I believe 33 was the year of the first NFL championship game, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah I think 33 was that was the game they've had to play inside, wasn't it? I believe so. That might have 34 been 34 was the Giants and the Bears was the sneaker game. I'm pretty sure 30, I'm pulling it up, but I believe that game was played at Chicago Stadium. No, it was played at Wrigley Field. 
what you're thinking of is the year before oh, okay, there was okay. a tie in the standings between the bears and the Portsmouth Spartans. And so to settle it, this was a, this was not a championship game that would have been played had there not been a tie, but in 32 Hallis decides to put this together and they put it's Chicago against Portsmouth and they play that one at the Chicago stadium. Uh, yeah. So 33 was a 23 to 21 bears win over the giants. And then the next year, the Giants beat the Bears in uh, at Yankees or at the Polo Grounds in the famous the sneakers game. So the league kind of it's it's the only professional football league again after this aborted uh, one season of the AFL and throughout the late twenties and early early thirties they're starting to sort of tighten up and they're shedding teams and by nineteen. 35 these are the teams that are in the national football league it's the new york giants the brooklyn dodgers the pittsburgh pirates who would one day become the pittsburgh steelers so they're a future they're a current day nfl team as well you have the boston redskins the chicago bears the Philadelphia Eagles, Detroit Lions, Green Bay Packers, and Chicago Cardinals. A nine-team league, all but one of which are future members of the National Football League. Or I'm sorry, our, our present-day members of the National Football League. And then you do have the a Cleveland Rams team that joins in 1937 and then they are they are one day to become the Los Angeles Rams that's kind of the first evidence of expansion i want to see how long does this brooklyn dodgers team stay in i believe they were i believe they were there as late as 41 cuz they were one of the teams i believe they played on pearl harbor that's harbor, right pearl harbor, pearl harbor day they weren't actually <laughs> playing there that day i think uh, that's <laughs> right yeah cuz when you hear about during an NFL game that the bombing of Pearl Harbor was announced. That's one of the teams. So yeah, they're there into world war two and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that, but I guess we should now also talk about the 1936 to 1937 version of the AFL. And this one was more successful because when you say the years they were operated, you have to use the word too. Um, <laughs> but yeah. And that was the Cleveland Rams are a good, uh, this one has a few more lasting implications. That's uh, right. The Cleveland Rams are the one team from AFL two that end up joining the NFL. Yeah. So it's again, it's another league. It starts and none of these leagues have any connection to each other. They just were all lazy, lazily named. And to be honest, who knows how many of them even knew about the previous leagues. It's not like these leagues were around that long. That's a fair um, point. So, yeah, you had the this league is interesting because it talks again. It goes back to the Giants. It said uh, former Giants director of personnel, Harry March, planned for a second American Football League. There were 15 cities bidding for franchises. The eight cities, Boston, Cleveland, Jersey City, New York, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Providence and Syracuse it says within a few months, Jersey City, Providence and Philadelphia pulled out. And Rochester was granted a franchise. Two weeks later, the newest franchise was transferred to Brooklyn, even though there was no stadium available at the time. 
that March became the league president for a little while. Says talks about how most of the AFL franchises started to um, raid talent rosters of the existing teams in most of those cities. Some of the teams, and I think the interesting teams you got to talk about, one would be the Boston Shamrocks, which sounds like a team that would be made up in like a, a game in the 90s or something <laughs> like that, a Sega or PlayStation game. Mm-hmm. Um, but the interesting thing is that I think is is the is worth talking about. They did so well in Boston popularity wise that the Boston Redskins moved to Washington. Yep. Mm -hmm. That was Mm -hmm. the main reason for the Boston Redskins moving to Washington was the success of the Shamrocks team, albeit briefly. And then obviously the Cleveland Rams who again are the defending Super Bowl champions, if you want to look at it that way. Another New York Yankees team coached by Jack McBride featuring the talents of star back Ken Strong, whose number is retired by the Giants. And who a couple but, years later would have a bowling competition against Babe Ruth to try and uh, encourage donations to the war effort. Interesting. Yeah, I yeah, found that. Cincinnati it. Bengals. You had a Cincinnati Bengals team, which is not related to the current team. And then you had a legitimate Los Angeles team for a while, the Los Angeles Bulldogs. They don't join till the second season. They don't join until 1937. But yes, unlike the original AFL team, which was just just called Los Angeles because of the fact that so many of the players had gone to college west of the Mississippi. This is an honest to God Los Angeles team, and they win the league title in 37. They go 8-0 in the league, and then they also play a number of non-league games. They play eight non-league games. They're the only team with a winning record in the league in 1937. 8-0 in the league, 16-0 total, and they play at a place called Gilmore Stadium in Los Angeles, which I would have to assume is um, long gone. Yes, in fact, it was actually Gilmore Stadium was demolished in 1952 to build Television City. And the only way I the only time I mean, I'm sure a lot of things were filmed there, but I still to this day, when I watch old reruns of all in the family, they say from Television City in Los Angeles. So a little bit a little bit of a pop culture intersection there with the, the original Los Angeles NFL team. Let's look up some, all right, shows produced to Television City, some of these that you'll know, All in the Family, American Idol, currently, Archie Bunker's Place, which makes sense, Art Linkletter's House Party, which I believe is still on the air, (laughs) Um, The Carol Burnett Show, Dancing with the Stars, Family Feud, let me see if there's any other really interesting ones worth talking about, Jack Benny Program. The Late Late Show for years has been there, the show that was after Letterman for all those years, uh, Mass Singer for a couple of years. So it's, I mean, it's still a very big, the Roseanne show. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of big time shows at Television City over the years. Welcome back, Cotter. So I don't know exactly what, I think it's just the same thing that kills this AFL team is just lack of attendance and just the inability to, draw money and draw fans in a sufficient number to justify continued operations. Yeah. It's it, again, it was a popular in Boston, Cleveland, and New York. 
places like Syracuse and Pittsburgh weren't supporting it. Unlike the NFL, AFL teams only had local interest. Out-of-town newspapers rarely covered the league's activity. Three weeks into the 1937 season, the poorly drawing Pittsburgh Americans gave up the ghost, leaving it in the, yep, uh, entry of the Los Angeles Bulldogs helped the league's demise. Says the new team simply overwhelmed the rest of the AFL as the only team with a winning record. They played all their away games in the first half of the season and then played at home in the second half of the season, but they still were losing money hand over fist. We should also mention this is 1936 and 37. This is not exactly rollicking good times for the country to be starting like uh, new football leagues. You know what I mean? Um, So they fold, said, uh, introduced the legacy, introduced Major League Football to the West Coast. Success of the Shamrocks caused George Preston Marshall partially was one of the reasons for him to move his team to Washington. The Cleveland Rams obviously joined the NFL. So that's, you know, that's really the longest lasting or the, the, legacies but that's that's not nothing either you know that's that's a good amount of, of interesting factoids so a couple years later there's an afl3 and this one i feel like is almost not even considered a professional like a th- this one feels like it's almost more semi-pro i know that historically i guess maybe it's considered to be a major league so to speak but i feel like just in doing my research and just in looking around that this 1940-41 AFL. And again, it's a lot of the same teams, you know, Boston, Buffalo, Cincinnati, Columbus, Milwaukee. It's like they just keep trying it in the same league. And it's just the same, the same thing. Now, obviously, Pearl Harbor maybe plays a role here, but I don't even know. The most interesting thing I was able to find about this third AFL is that they played a double round robin schedule. Each team played each other twice, which sort of has become the norm in football in a lot of ways. But really in any sport, this idea that there's a proportionality to who you play and you don't just kind of play whoever you can get. So, yeah, And that's still to this day what like soccer leagues are, OVs, like the, the Premier League and, and- uh, the UK, it's called like a double table or where you play home and away against everybody. So yeah, you're looking at the Boston Bears, the Buffalo Indians, another Cincinnati Bengals, the Columbus Bullies, Milwaukee Chiefs, and another New York Yankees. <laughs> well, we're going to get into to a little bit of New York Yankees stuff in a couple of minutes here. So yeah, so it talks about, and then we'll go to demise. Lost the Boston Bears franchise. Owners' uh, league's average attendance was less than uh, the AFL seemed to be on firm financial footing. By the end of the 1941 season, a new franchise was awarded to Detroit. All plans for 1942 came to a sudden stop on December 7th. So whatever viability they would have had. On September 2nd, 1942, AFL President William D. Cox announced the league would suspend operations for the war's duration. We do not have the time to go into the football business this fall. I want to stress that there is no financial problem involved. Each team definitely has enough finances to continue. All right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that, that was the third AFL. So in 1942, you got a 12-team league. Oh, no, I'm sorry. You got an, a 10-team league. NFL. NFL. Redskins, Steelers, Giants, Eagles, Brooklyn Dodgers. Bears, Packers, Cleveland Rams, Chicago Cardinals, and Detroit Lions. It's a very tight, very even 10-team 
league, but sort of as it had for the AFL, the onset of World War II really throws the league into disarray. And starting in 1943, you see these teams having to make some interesting choices. The Eagles and Steelers combine. They become the Philadelphia Pittsburgh Eagles Steelers, um, sometimes known as the Steagles as sort of their nickname. And I read a really good book a bunch of years ago about that season. And they go back and forth. They play the home games in both Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. And then it looks like another team drops off to in four, from 42 to 43. And I'm trying to There's figure only eight out teams in a league in 43. Yeah. So who else? Somebody else must sort of go on hiatus here. The Dodgers, I believe. No, they're still there in 43. That's the thing. It's uh, in 42. Oh, well, they go from nine teams to eight because the Eagles and Steelers combine. No, they go from and, 10 to eight. OK, it, the, the, the Rams West, go. The Rams go on Rams. hiatus. It's actually okay. not the same Ram team. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Or they take a year off. Maybe they don't come back until till like 45. So the, in 43, the Rams take a year off and the Eagles and the Steelers combine. So you got an eight team league. And then in 44, the Rams are able to come back. So maybe they just had to take a year off. Now you got the Boston Yanks who... I don't even know who they would take. Do they take the place of somebody? I guess not. This this gets really confusing during the war years because I don't know who the Boston Yanks would take the place of. And then the Eagles go back to doing their thing. But then you got the Steelers combined with the Cardinals. So you got the shy pit card Steelers and they go zero and ten. They do not compete well in the <laughs> which I guess makes sense because you got the two teams in the league who are sort of the least able to support themselves. This is really just crazy. Yeah. Cause the Rams are back. And then you also got the, you also got the, um, the, the Boston Yanks who I don't know who they would take the place of. So yeah, it's, it's really confusing. And then I think by 45, we're kind of back. Um, we're back to a little well, bit. The other thing I was just thinking of too, the Rams left for a little while. I'm sure there were limits on fuel and stuff like that. You know what I mean? And they were on the West coast. No, the Rams are still in Cleveland. Well, 40, when they came back in 46, they were, they were in. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Never mind. Never mind. They you know, they come back in 44 and they're, they're still yeah. in Cleveland. Okay. Okay. And then, and then in 45, the Boston team combines with the Brooklyn team to become the Boston Brooklyn Yanks Tigers. So I think we sort of want to pick up there with the state of NFL football in at the close of World War II. And just give me one second. I want to grab a pen. So. All right. So in 1946, the teams in the NFL, so we're through all the war, we're, we're settled. We had 10 teams in the NFL. At the end of night, or going, you know, for the 1946 season in the East, you have the Giants, the Eagles, the Steelers, the Redskins. So obviously, four teams still in existence now, and the Boston Yanks. And then in the West, you have the Bears, Chicago Bears, 
the LA Rams, the Chicago Cardinals, the Green Bay Packers, and the Detroit Lions. So those are your 10 teams in 1946. Nine teams that are still in existence, almost all of them in the same place, except for the Cardinals, and I guess the Rams had a sojourn, but for the most part, still the same. So those are, uh, that's sort of where, when the dust settled and the teams that had combined had re-separated and all of that, those were your teams coming out of the war in the late 40s. And you also have the dawning of a rival league, and that is led by a gentleman by the name of Arch Ward, who is the editor of the Chicago Tribune. And we've talked about in this in a previous episode, but do you know what his original claim to fame in sports was prior to the formation of the AAFC? He was the guy who created the uh, Major League Baseball All-Star game. Yeah, and encouraged fans to to mail in their votes and that type of thing. And so he wants to bring football to the he wants to bring more football. He wants to bring football to the Midwest. And he he you know, this is and this is sort of the first version of a guy who actually has plans to form a rival league. He actually doesn't just kind of want to get included and, you know, in a fit, he then puts up. He actually has big dreams. It's post-war economy's booming. And so he has this idea for a another league, the AAFC. And one of his big ideas here is he wants the league to truly be a national league. He doesn't want it to be centered only on the West Coast. I'm sorry, only on the East Coast and in the Midwest. So basically from New York to Chicago with stops in between, there's very little South. There's very little West. He wants to include those parts of the countries that are underserved. So this is a league. It's got two teams in California. It's got the San Francisco 49ers and the Los Angeles Dons. They've got their New York teams. They've got the New York Yankees at Yankee Stadium, Brooklyn Dodgers at Ebbets Field. But then they also have the Miami Seahawks in 1946, the first professional sports franchise in really in all of the South, um, you know, south of D.C., but particularly in the state of Florida. And so they start with this eight team league and very early on, it's dominated by one franchise, and that's the Cleveland Browns. Yeah, they uh, pretty much they win the league every year that it exists, correct? Um, yep, 46, 47, 48, 49. They win all three, or all four, I should say. Yep, and I guess originally what obviously was the, the start of all that was they hire Paul Brown, who was seen as – there was a little bit of an outside-the-box hire. He was – he had just been coaching what in high school or something like that at that point. Um, he coached high school and he coached some in the military also, I think military, you know, military teams, that kind of thing. Yeah. No move was more far reaching than Cleveland's choice of Paul Brown. Brown had won six Ohio state championships in nine years at Massillon high school and the 1942 national championship in Ohio state. So had he, had he coached at Ohio state? Maybe, maybe, maybe had 42. Paul- did he maybe coach there for like a year in the in the war years, Paul Brown? Um, mythical. When you click on that, it says mythical national championship. So maybe that's not recognized. But yeah, he, he he had, you know, he was not somebody that even for an upstart league like the All American Football Conference, it was kind of a surprise that they went with him. 
um, he became, you know, the face of the league, the franchise, and the city to a certain extent from then on. And the rosters of these Browns teams are just incredible. The first and foremost is the quarterback, Otto Graham, who plays 10 years in professional football, 46 to 55, all with the Browns, first in the AAFC for four years and then for another six in the NFL after the merger makes it at least to a championship game every single year, either winning or losing that championship game, but making it in every single year. One of still one of the greatest, you know, 10 to 12 quarterbacks in NFL history, even to this day. And then they also are the team that is responsible for, I guess you'd call it the re-breaking of the color line when they uh, play in their first game uh, in September of 46. They play two black athletes, black players who are future Hall of Famers, and that's Marion Motley, who's a linebacker and a fullback. And if you've seen clips of Marion Motley, he was just this big lumbering runner. And then Bill Willis, who was an offensive lineman and nose tackle, another Hall of Famer. And so innovation sort of from both a sociopolitical, you know, civil rights point of view and also on the field, all of these things that Paul Brown invents sending in place from the sideline, all this type of thing. He's one of the first coaches who really is an in-game coach, strategizing, play calling, all that kind of thing. And this is the first league that the NFL really sees as a threat. You know, we've talked about those three AFLs and obviously, um, it's pretty clear why they didn't need to see them as a threat. The only thing you can kind of say is in one market, it might've made a struggling team move the second AFL. So then you have that, that figure kind of looms large in, in this discussion, which is Washington Redskins owner, George Preston Marshall. Have you ever heard his quote about, uh, about the all American football conference in 1945? Is he the one who says like, call me once they've, bought a ball or something. I know there's a quote on that. It might be later. His is, is a little more cutting. He said, I did not realize there was another league, although I did receive some literature telling about a WPA project. <laughs> WPA, which was the works progress administration during the new deal that kind of put people to work who, who wouldn't have work otherwise. Right. Yeah, and then a lot of players defected from Marshall's team to the All-American Football Conference. Talks about, in addition to the Browns and just that kind of a dominant run, average the owners in the American All-American Football Conference were very, very wealthy compared to NFL owners, which is almost hard to believe now. But, you know, at the time, you couldn't just get rich being a football owner or it was hard to at least. So they obviously had, they were able to absorb some losses for a little while. The NFL is still kind of dominated by the lifers. The guy who's guys who've been there at the beginning or close to the beginning, Marshall, Hallis, Mara, Rooney, those guys. And so it's, it's a, you're right. It's a different, those owners in the AAFC were more similar to what you might've seen in the present day with guys who'd already made their fortune and were trying to make, trying to then go on and form a football league. One of the interesting things here, and this sort of ties in to the quote that 
we talked about the both the NFL and the AAFC at this point have members of have as commissioner or league president, whatever you want to call it, individuals who had once been members of the famed four horsemen of Notre Dame. Is that right? Hold on. Yes. I just want to. It is. Okay. So who is, who is it? Jim Crowley, who's the NFL commissioner? I believe it's him. And let me see. Yeah. The uh, Jim. Yeah. It says Jim Crowley might've been the commissioner of the AAFC actually. That's yep. correct. Jim I'm sorry. Crowley was the commissioner of the AAFC. NFL commissioner at the time was Elmer Layden fighting who were both members of the fighting Irish at the university of Notre Dame. They were known as the four horsemen. Jim Crowley uh, at one point was replaced uh, by Lex Luger in the Four Horsemen, but that uh, group didn't that that version did not get over as well. And then they put uh, Barry Windham in there. Wrestling ahead, reference for those of you who are curious. Hey, the Four Horsemen is also a Bible reference, so don't get on my case about you know. Go ahead. So Layden, when he's asked about the AAFC, he says, all I know of new leagues is what I read in the newspapers. There is nothing for the National Football League to talk about as far as new leagues are concerned until someone gets a football and plays a game. And this gets shortened in newspapers throughout the country to, quote, tell them to get a football first. And that kind of serves as as a rallying cry for the league to try and go on and succeed the fact that the NFL is dismissing them as a bunch of guys who don't even have a ball. There's some interesting people involved with some of these teams. The Baltimore team, which doesn't join the league until 1947. Do you know who's involved with that team? The Baltimore league and the Baltimore team in 1947. I don't off the top of my head. Gene Tunney. Is okay involved you know he's kind of like you see today with some of these star athletes he's he's not he doesn't actually you know own the team but he's considered a you know part of the ownership group and then the los angeles team the los angeles dons is co-owned by a gentleman by the name of christy walsh who i've actually been reading quite a bit about recently because he was um originally part of his original sort of way he made his fortune was as a sports agent and he represented a number of baseball players sort of all the greats of the 20s and 30s ruth cobb mcgraw gehrig walter johnson rogers hornsby and he uh takes Babe Ruth on this sort of record-setting, Ruth N. Gehrig on this record-setting barnstorming tour in 1927. And he's the guy who really made Babe Ruth into the first major sports celebrity of the modern era. By the mid-40s, he's moved on to other things, and he's part owner of the Los Angeles team, the Dons, in the AAFC. And then there's also a team called the Brooklyn Dodgers. And there had been one in the NFL prior mm-hmm. to their folding. But this is a team. And what year do they are they there in 46 or do they not get there until 47? Let me let me see if I can pull that out. Are they, I think they are there in 46 and they are run by Branch Rickey. 
Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, he is. He is heavily involved with the team. And we'll talk um, a little bit um, in, in early 1948. The Dodgers had the AAFC rights to a quarterback by the name of Charlie Connerly, a quarterback who had set passing records at Old Miss during the previous two seasons. The Giants also wanted Connerly. Again, you see the Maras just getting it into getting into it with people from these other leagues. And this, the, the, keep in mind, this is right about when Branch Rickey is he the guy a year or so before he just signed Jackie Robinson, the most important signing in the history of sports. And he's building this Brooklyn Dodger dynasty, but he's still got time to to run the, this Brooklyn Dodger football team. And so the Giants decide they're not going to get into a bidding war with the Dodgers for Connerly. So Connor, but Connerly, despite the fact that Ricky makes the better offer, he eventually goes on and signs with the Giants for sixty two thousand five hundred. So just a little more than half of what Ricky has offered. And it says furious Ricky predicted the giants would have a morale problem because Connerly had taken the lesser offer. So the team's going to have a morale problem because they signed a player for less money than he could have gotten elsewhere. <laughs> it seems un-American to me, said Ricky. Maybe the kid figures he'll have greater security with the giants than with an organization that puts such a low price on a 21 game winner. Oh no. Oh no. Hold on. This is actually, this isn't Ricky saying this. This is Ralph Branca. Saying <laughs> the pitcher says, because because Ricky was well known for lowballing his Dodger players, his, his baseball Dodger players. Ralph Branca won 21 games in 1947 and then didn't like the contract offer that he got from Ricky. And so Br- Branca says, maybe the kid figures he'll have greater security with the Giants than with an organization that puts such a low price on a 21-game winner. (laughs) And Mara then replies, or maybe he looked over the All-America Conference and realized we've been here 24 years, whereas Brooklyn has had three, four owners. I don't know where this guy gets off talking about morale problems and stuff, considering the business he's in. (laughs) Yeah, Branch Rickey played a role, uh, I guess a somewhat significant role in the AAFC. So... It really is a very interesting story of the 1940s in the AAFC. Well, and there's one more New York baseball tie, too. Did you want to talk about that? Why don't you go ahead? All right. So the NFL has a team known as the Brooklyn Tigers, owned by a guy named Dan Topping, who that's a famous name. His team played at Ebbets Field. So in the NFL, you got the the. Giants playing at the Polo Grounds. There's three Major League Baseball stadiums in New York City. You have the Giants playing at the Polo Grounds and the Tigers, the Brooklyn Tigers playing at Ebbets Field. He wants to move the team from Ebbets Field to Yankee Stadium. Tim Mara uses his territorial <laughs> rights to block the move. It's always the Maras. He doesn't want Tigers playing right across the river in Yankee Stadium, which is really the better it's the newer better stadium and it's the you know the 40s the yankees are the class of all of of professional sports so when the maras block it topping just buys into the baseball yankees and oversees them for the next 20 plus years as one of the greatest 
the you know he but so if he bought into them in 1946 47 how many championships did they win in the first 10 years he was the owner the yankees yeah the dan topping del webb owner uh yeah, I mean, they win in 47, then they win five in a row from 49 to 53, and then they win in 56, 58. So what happens is he, he buys into the baseball Yankees. Again, he's not – he's the owner of the Brooklyn Tigers, and he just wants to move his football team to Yankee Stadium. The Maras block it. So he buys in and becomes one of the most successful baseball owners of all time. But what he does is he then transfers the Brooklyn Tigers to the AAFC – and renames them the New York Yankees. So he gets the team he wants in the stadium he wants. He has to change leagues in the NFL, uh, change football leagues to do it. Now, they don't last forever, but a lot of that is enough to get Layden fired and replaced with Burt Bell as the commissioner of the NFL. Well, and there's another piece to that whole thing, too. So, and we're, we're talking a lot of baseball tonight, but it's, 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 it's funny how it, it ties in so much. Yeah. So the, the Yankees... And this kind of this this all really ties in. So what the hell we go along here? So in the early '40s, the Dodgers are basically owned and run by a guy named Larry McPhail, who is what was the quote from the Ken Burns baseball? They said with with no drinks he was brilliant, with one drink he was a genius, with two drinks he was insane, and rarely did he stop at one. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. So the the Dodgers lose the World Series in forty one to the Yankees. McPhail, the the other sort of ownership group of the Dodgers, gets sick of McPhail. They force him out. They bring in Branch Rickey, as a matter of fact. And then in the late forties, mid forties, McPhail joins with Webb and Topping to buy the. New York Yankees. And in 47, the team owned by these three guys, the Yankee team, goes to the World Series and beats Branch Rickey's Dodgers. Well, Larry McPhail, who runs the Yankees, the the baseball Yankees, after the 1947 World Series. And we're going to do an episode on the 47 World Series in a couple, in a couple of about a month and a half or so. Gets drunk at the post game party after the 47 World Series. Confronts Dan Topping drunkenly and ends up quitting, selling his share of the team and leaving the Yankees. So that means that Topping has to take much more of a role in the day-to-day organization of the baseball team. So in the late 1940s, when the AAFC is getting ready to merge with the NFL, they know that not every team is going to go. Topping decides, because he's so busy concentrating on the baseball now with McPhail gone, he's got no time for the football, He says, when McPhail was around, it was possible for me to devote enough of my time to the running of the football enterprise. But now with McPhail gone, baseball is the primary interest of the New York Yankees. So if Larry McPhail had not gotten drunk after the World Series in 1947, you might you might have had a second NFL team in New York City. 20 years before it actually happened. 
yeah, crazy story. They might, they might, I mean, we'd take one professional team in the New York city area right now. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so should we talk about sort of the, um, the merger aspect and exactly what was involved? Yeah. And I think sort of the theme again is just that the team is kind of losing money that the leagues are losing money. Teams are by 49. The league is fewer teams than it had been. They don't have two divisions anymore. They're down to just one division and there's no Eastern and Western conferences anymore. Like there had been, they just realized that if they're going to survive, they have to merge with the NFL. Yep. So end of the 49 season says three AAFC teams were admitted to the NFL, the Browns, 49ers and Colts. The Dons merged with the Rams. Really, they were absorbed because they they were still became were the Rams while the Bills, Yankees and Hornets folded. The third choice talks about how the Cubs instead of the Bills was a little bit of a uh, confusing thing. I guess the, the Colts of- instead of the Bills, you mean? Yeah. The size of Buffalo and the climate were seen as um, issues. They ultimately ended up issuing a vote on whether to add the bills as well. The vote was actually 9-4 in favor, but since it was not unanimous, which was the rule at the time, they did not add them. And it should also be noted, this is not the... And you said it was the Baltimore team was the third team? The Colts, yeah. But it should also be noted that this is not the Baltimore Colts that you would think it would be. They they go into the NFL for they'd only been one and eleven in nineteen forty nine, which is crazy. They only last one season. They only last until nineteen fifty. The team was originally the league was originally supposed to be called the National American Football League, as sort of a way of showing respect to both teams, but I think that lasts for about five weeks. And the NFL, they just decide that that they're the NFL. And but I think from an on the field point of view, the Browns, they join. They the very first game of the season in and I guessed it on um historically speaking sports with Dana Guster about a year ago on this topic. They play a night game Saturday, September 16th to open the 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 season they'd been four-time AAFC champions they had they're going up against the Philadelphia Eagles who'd been NFL champions in 48 and 49 and they just completely annihilate the the Eagles the Browns do 45 to 13 they go on to beat the Rams in the 50 NFL title game lose in the NFL title game in 51, they lose again in 52 and in 53, but then they come back in 54 and 55 to win two more NFL titles. And that's when a lot of these guys retire. Otto Graham leaves. Dante Lavelli, Motley, some of these guys have retired. But then within a couple of years, Jim Brown has joined the team and they are one of the major powerhouses of the 50s and 60s also. So Despite what comes later from 45 when they or 46 when they join the AAFC to 65 when Jim Brown retires, you have basically a 20 year period where the Cleveland Browns are one of the elite franchises in American sports. Yeah. And that's I mean, arguably, they've been living off that ever since. I mean, they were not very good in the 70s. They had a couple of nice years in the 80s. 
disappeared in the 90s, but they still are, when you look at like most championships won, they're still up there. And it's, you know, because of these teams coming in from the All-America Football Conference and winning in the in the 50s and then again in the 60s. So I guess the postscript to the AAFC is that they do better than any expansion league ever had before. Mm-hmm. They they rival the the teams in the league for attendance in the cities where there are teams um, from both leagues. They do decently well enough when it comes to attendance. And just let me just pull up something that I um that I that I grabbed here. Um, this is from actually one of the the PFRA, one of the the coffin corners here. I just want to find the right issue here. Um, there we go. AAFC versus NFL attendance. Just bear with me here for a second. This is by a gentleman by the name of uh, Ken Tomash, a PFRA member. So in Chicago, it's it's you know it's more Bears and Cardinals. They do better than the Chicago team, but it's closer in New York. The 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 football Yankees um, average just about the same exact number as the Giants and the Bulldogs do, about twenty eight thousand a game. Cleveland, um, by far, they have they have attendance that's almost twice as big in forty six than any of the other teams. They average fifty seven thousand. So. They are the attendant. In addition to the winningest team, they're the attendance behemoths, at least until 49, when the San Francisco 49ers pull ahead. And not surprising that those are the two teams that end up going to the NFL and staying. The Baltimore Colts are gone. They fold, I believe, I want to say in like 1952, they fold. And so you're... The legacy of obviously, and they rejoin a few years later in the mid fifties. Mm-hmm. But the legacy of the the and then if it also in fifty two in the fifty two in the NFL you have one year of the Dallas Texans who go one and eleven and immediately fold. They replaced the oh, and then you still got the but then in fifty one you got a New York Yanks in the NFL. That must be a different team. Um, it's so hard to figure out. Yeah, they were the Bulldogs in 49. And, and yeah, this just like you said, it, it's so hard to figure out. I, but I think it's by 53, I want to say. Or maybe you get the. And then, OK, in, in 53, the Baltimore Colts, the the team that becomes known as the Baltimore Colts joins the league. They kind of replace this one year Texas team. So in 53, you got Browns, Eagles, Redskins, Steelers, Giants, Cardinals, Lions, 49ers, Rams, Bears, Colts, Packers. The NFL is a 12-team league, two divisions of six. And that, in 53, you're finally there. Mm-hmm. Nobody else is going to leave. Those are the 12 teams, all 12 still in the league, you know, 75 almost years later. That is, it's coalesced. That is the 12 that they go forward into the rest of the 50s and the 60s with. Yeah, and it's only, they have, what, 16 teams by the time they merge, and even really 14 by the time the mergers talk, the merger talks start. So there's really only a couple of more additions, and they're both in response to the league we're going to talk about in a minute. 
Before we go to the AFL, the real AFL, I did just want to mention, and this is not competition in any way, but sort of chronologically, this is a league that started in the late 50s, and that's the CFL, the mm-hmm. Canadian Football League. Um, again, not competition of the NFL. It's pretty much all in Canada, minus one time we're going to talk about in a minute, but it's been around for a long time. Uh, you know, I think as, as Americans, we kind of just go like, oh, they have the really long field. It's like 120 yards. But there's teams that have been there forever for the most part and teams that actually like most people know the names of in the U.S., even if they've never watched a Canadian Football League game. You got the Calgary Stampeders, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, the Toronto Argonauts, the Montreal Alouettes. Those are teams that people know. And the Grey Cup up there, you know, we talk about hockey in Canada and obviously hockey is the beginning, middle and end of sports in Canada. And they they have major league, you know, their, Toronto has a baseball team and they have a, a basketball team who won a championship a few years ago. But the CFL is very popular in Canada. Like, I think Americans tend to, like, joke about it a little bit. It is very, very popular. It's, you know, the Great Cup is one of the biggest sporting events of the year in Canada. In the mid-90s, they did try, it was 94 and 95, they did try a brief sojourn into the U.S., with teams in Memphis, Las Vegas, Birmingham, and Baltimore. Baltimore, this was the time between the Colts leaving for Indianapolis and the Ravens being announced as coming in from Cleveland. The team so, tried to call themselves the Colts and were promptly... So they were, the, they were the Stallions. Then they became the Stallions, yeah. But they played at the old Memorial Stadium. It was, it was an, an effort to re, mm-hmm. reborn something with Baltimore football. We can talk about it from a Baltimore standpoint. It's been done, but from a CFL standpoint, they kind of quickly realized, Hey, this isn't really going to work. So they just, it was the Baltimore team was there in 94 and 95. They're the only ones who were there two years. Vegas was there in 94. Memphis was there in 95. Birmingham was there in 95. And then they were all gone. Uh, They had proposed teams in San Antonio and Jackson, Mississippi, and a few other places, but they just, they abandoned the U.S. experiment. But, you know, I just wanted to mention, because they were founded in the late 50s, what we're talking about here, that it is a very long-running, successful, and popular league, even if it doesn't get a whole lot of coverage in the United States. All right, so should we we move on to the AFL? Yes. And you got to start with one guy, right? Lamar Hunt? Yes, we should start with Lamar Hunt. Lamar Hunt, who is a Texas oilman, desperately wants to bring a professional football team to Texas. He actually wants to bring any type of professional sports league to Texas, so much so that in 1959, he tries to join up with a baseball team in the Continental League, which is the league that is being formed by the aforementioned Branch Rickey, that league never happens, and I feel like we're doing half of our baseball episode now. <laughs> so maybe we'll maybe that one will come in in under three hours. But so Hunt then focuses his gaze on the Chicago Cardinals, and unlike in baseball, Chicago is the only city that has two of the 12 NFL teams in its city limits. So, you know, everybody else is spread out. There's not two teams in New York. There's not two teams. There's two teams in California, but one's in LA and one's in San Francisco. 
the NFL has been going along for decades with two teams in Chicago. The Bears have been winning throughout the 30s and the 40s, you know, Hallis and Sid Luckman and Bronco Nagurski and the Cardinals, although they win a title in 47, they are definitely the stepchild of the NFL of professional football in Chicago. And so Hunt tries to buy them and move them to Texas, but it just doesn't really work out. And he decides, like these owners have in some of these previous leagues, that if he can't buy a team in the NFL, he's going to just start his own league. Yep. And he's, uh, you know, the NFL sort of, again, rebuffs the, you know, either doesn't take it seriously or doesn't, or at least pretends not to take it seriously. but. In 1960, the AFL signed 75% of the NFL's first-round draft picks. And if they weren't paying attention before that, they were paying attention then. And we should just talk about, in 1960, who the original season of the American Football League... And and that's real quick, before you get into that. Obviously, there's going to be one big move. But the thing that differentiates this from a lot of these other leagues, it's eight teams... They all pretty much stay in the same spot, except for, again, one move we'll talk about. And then they just add two teams towards the end. Like they don't you're not it's a lot easier to track than what we were just trying to do with the NFL and with some of those earlier leagues. The stability of the franchises is the reason it was so viable. Some of the people have made the point that the world of sports and and expansion leagues and everything might have been very different if Hunt had been able to actually buy the Cardinals and move them because there never would have been an AFL. And maybe that means that the ABA wouldn't have tried later on in the sixties and you wouldn't have seen some of these other football leagues that we're going to talk about. So Lamar hunt, not being able to job to purchase the Chicago Cardinals and move them to Texas is one of the most seminal and important moments in uh, 20th century American sports. So the league starts with eight teams, Houston Oilers, New York Titans, who would later become the Jets, Buffalo Bills, Boston Patriots, L.A. Chargers, who moved to San Diego within a couple of years, Dallas Texans, who we talk about, who we'll talk about, Oakland Raiders and the Denver Broncos. One of the things that immediately jumps out at me is just how colorful those teams are. The silver and black of the Raiders, the orange of the Broncos. There's no orange in the NFL in the late 1950s. You know, the Patriots have sort of a strong red and blue. Houston with the light blue. Right from the start, they want stylistically to stand out from the sort of older, more conservative NFL. Let's look at a couple of these drafts that you talked about the 1960 um, top 25 NFL draft selections. You mentioned Billy Cannon, who's a, who goes to Hunt's Chiefs, is a hero in the state of Texas. I believe he'd um, gone to college in Texas. And mm-hmm. so he goes to the Houston Texans. Johnny Robinson, a Hall of Fame safety, ends up going the Kansas City Chiefs. 
I don't know if you used a number. What would you say? It was six out of the top 10 go to the AFL? I saw 75% of the NFL's first round. Okay. And I see here one, two, three, four, five, six of the 10 in 1960 go to the AFL. And then um, and this continues throughout the 60s. You start to get into bidding wars. You start to get into players, you know, players like Joe Namath signing these exorbitant contracts because football, like other sports, had I, mean, I guess sports even have it to this day. But the players just have less power. Generally, you get drafted by somebody. That's where you got to go. And now all of a sudden, when you got two teams, you got two employers fighting for your services, salaries are going to necessarily shoot through the roof, comparatively mm-hmm. speaking. And frankly, it's, it eventually becomes somewhat unsustainable, and that's what leads to the merger. But you do have until 67 when they agree on a merger and start to have a common draft. The teams are on a very interesting track as far as salaries going up and up and up and up and up. Yeah, well, and the other thing, too, was at one point the AFL started not just going after draft picks. They started going after guys who were under contract in the NFL. And that was when you really started to get to a point where, I mean, that's as close to declaring all-out war as you're going to get from an upstart, you know, underdog league. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And... I think I I don't I don't have the list, but they start to go after NFL quarterbacks and sign a number of these quarterbacks. I don't know whoever actually goes over if anybody goes over, but it's it's definitely something. Let me see if I can find that real quick. But Mm -hmm. it's definitely something that comes up over the course of the the mid 60s is signing of quarterbacks. The NFL sort of expansion during this time, the Dallas market gets a lot of talk. You know, we talked. Lamar Hunt and that being his original goal and ultimately ending up in Kansas City. The other expansion they do is the Minnesota Vikings. And that's the Minnesota market had been one of the original markets in on this AFL thing. And they were lured away by the promise of an expansion franchise in the NFL to the point where when Minnesota pulled out, they had already made draft selections and the Oakland franchise had to inherit the Minnesota's uh, Minnesota team's draft selections because that was, it was after the original draft that occurred. Jeez. Yeah. So in, there was sort of an unwritten agreement between the leagues that they wouldn't sign each other's players. They would compete for players who'd been drafted by both leagues, but they wouldn't go after teams who are already under contract in 1965, the NFL, the Giants, again, Mara's always in the middle of this thing. They signed Pete Gogolak, who's a kicker, and he had played out his option. And that's a, you know, a whole other thing that was something in sports in the 60s. And the NFL, at least, was playing out your option where you would basically, if you didn't like what the team was offering, you would play one more season at your current salary and then you'd become, in essence, a free agent. So Gogolak, this kicker, does this. And then in May 66, the Giants signed Gogolak, and so the NFL, led by Al Davis, who's taken over as commissioner in '66, signs notable NFL draft uh, NFL players, including a couple of quarterbacks, John Gabriel or John Brody and Roman Gabriel, Mike Ditka, future Hall of Fame coach, 
And that sort of is what leads the two leagues to sort of sue for peace. And they develop this this merger agreement. Did we want to take a second and talk back, talk about the, the, the Dallas Texans real quick? Yeah, the other things I just wanted to talk about with the AFL, one of the big things that gave them a leg up right away was they had good TV. Mm-hmm. First ABC the first couple of years, and then NBC, the NFL was historically on CBS. That sort of structure you still see today, although it's almost gone at this point, but with the conferences for years, it was even after the merger, NBC had the AFC, CBS had the NFC, and then Fox came in and they've switched and everything. And it's it's kind of a weaker thing now, but that dates back to the days of the AFL on NBC and the NFL on CBS. And that was, you know, it was during the nation days of TV where they had a really strong TV deal. So they weren't going any, if you had good TV, you weren't going anywhere. And I think it's also worth noting that right in 1960, when the AFL comes along is also when Pete Rozelle, Pete Rozelle becomes the commissioner of the NFL. And he is other than David Stern and maybe Landis in baseball in the forties, he is the most consequential commissioner in sports history. And one of the things that Roselle does is tightens up the TV for the NFL in 1960. The NFL games are actually broadcast on three different networks. The Steelers and the Colts are on NBC. The Browns are on something called the Independent Sports Network. No idea what that is. Probably some sort of a syndication type of thing. And then the other nine teams were on CBS. And so with the coming of the AFL, one of the things that that sort of nudges the NFL into doing is to tighten up its TV contract so that they're all on the one network. They've got one contract. Everybody shares in the revenue. One of the marquee teams of the early 1960s in the AFL is the Dallas Texans who come in and they come into the AFL the same year that the Dallas Cowboys come in to the National Football League. And so maybe that's something that's worth talking about here is that there is expansion going on in the NFL at the same time that the AFL is coming into being. Do you want to talk maybe about some of the the expansion of the NFL in the early 60s? Because it ties in. Yeah, so we talked about the Cowboys. So we we got the the 10-team or the 12-team league that we had had landed on when we sorted out the the Yanks and the Tigers and all of that. So it's 12 teams. I just mentioned Minnesota being added as the 14th team. They bail on the AFL when they're invited to join the NFL. Yep. And like I said, Oakland ends up inheriting their draft picks because the Minneapolis AFL team already made picks, including I just looked up Jim Otto, who went on to a Hall of Fame career with the Oakland Raiders. But the Dallas one was also was the NFL, would really had no plans to expand before the AFL started making noise. And the Dallas market was one of the ones that was most appealing to them. So in order to cut the legs out from the AFL and the really the lead figure of the AFL in Lamar Hunt, the NFL decides to beat him to the punch and announces that the Dallas market will be getting an NFL team right at the same time it's getting an AFL team. And they're so nervous about this that they actually jumped the gun on expansion by a year. The Vikings don't join until 61, but the Dallas Texans or the Dallas Cowboys, I should say, come in in 60. And I don't know all the details, but I think it's safe to say that they were not particularly well prepared because they finished the season with a 0-11-1 record in 1960 in the NFL. 
The Texans, though, the, the AFL team are is good. They are coached by Hank Stram, who is a future Hall of Famer. They go eight and eight in their first eight and six in their first year, six and eight in their second year. But by their third year, they have an 11 and three record. They win the AFL West division. They then win the championship 20 to 17 against the other team from the state of Texas. So the NFL has got one horrible team in Texas. The AFL has got two good teams in the state of Texas. Their quarterback is a future Hall of Famer by the name of Lenny Dawson actually just passed away this year. They have as their star halfback, a gentleman by the name of Abner Haynes, who had gone to college at North Texas and then was drafted by the Dallas team in the 1960 AFL draft. He's an all pro and obviously with, with Texas ties, he's somebody who's very popular in the state. And they win this AFL championship. I believe, do they have Billy? Can- oh, no, Billy Cannon. I'm sorry. I misspoke. Billy Cannon, who's a star at LSU. He actually, um, and I believe is, is he from Texas? No, he's actually from Louisiana. Billy Cannon um, goes to the Houston team in the AFL, not the Dallas team, although he was one of those guys who was drafted by both leagues in 1960 and ends up with the AFL. But despite the fact that they have just won the AFL title, things are untenable financially for the Texans. And just even though they were they were the defending champions, they actually moved to Kansas City beginning with the 63 season to become the Kansas city chiefs. Yep. So they, they move in 63. The AFL actually does expand twice from eight to 10 teams during their run. In 1966, the dolphins joined. So for a little while, there's nine teams in the AFL. And then in 1968, the uh, Cincinnati Bengals joined. So the Bengals are an AFL team for only two years. So that's the 10 we're in. We end up in the AFL at the time of the merger. The NFL, you've got your 14 teams. Then in 1966, the Atlanta Falcons joined the league. So they've, they've gone from 10 to 12 with the or excuse me, 12 to 14 with the addition of the Cowboys and the Vikings in the early 60s. And now here in the mid 60s, 1966, they get Atlanta. That's the year of the first Super Bowl. And then the next year, they get the Saints, neither team distinguishing themselves particularly well for the first 20 years of their existence. But so that gets us to 26 teams at the time that talks really get serious. 16 NFL teams. The NFL does that crazy thing in 1967 where they go from Eastern and Western to the capital, the century, the coastal, and the central. It's the only time the Giants aren't in a division with the Cowboys, the Eagles, and the Redskins. It's the Cowboys, Eagles, Redskins, and Saints, and then the Giants, the Steelers, the Cardinals, and the Browns. It only lasts for one year, and then they move the Giants into the Capital Division. The uh, although then they move them back in '69. Yeah, they do during those three years from '67 to '69. They do some some really strange things yeah. as far as moving the teams between divisions. And I want to come back to that in a second, but just real quick on the the Kansas City Chiefs moving from. Texas. Did you know that Lamar Hunt originally wanted to keep the name Texans, even though the team was in Kansas City? I didn't until you told me that a few months ago. They wanted to. He wanted them to stay the Kansas City Texans, and I think somebody just told him, you know, it's not going to make sense. It's 
probably not going to do a great job of drawing fans to your new team. (laughs) Yeah, you clearly don't want to be there if that's what you're going to call them. But hey, uh, 60 years later, it's worked out pretty well for them. Yeah, and that's always interesting to think about that everybody associates Lamar Hunt with the Kansas City Chiefs, but he was a Texas guy first Mm. and foremost. So real quick, um, just some of the... um, some of the details of this AFL NFL merger, the two leagues would combine to form an expanded league with 24 teams increased to 26 teams in 1969 and 28 by 1970 or soon thereafter. They actually don't get to the 28 until 1976 when they add the Seahawks and the Buccaneers. And we can talk a little bit about that, which is, you know, interesting in its own right. All existing franchises would be retained. The AFL it would pay in indemnities to NFL teams with shared markets with AFL teams, particularly the Giants would get money from the Jets. The Niners would get money from the Raiders teams start holding a common draft. So the um, the whole sort of bidding war for players goes away uh, through 69. The teams hold separate are basically separate leagues starting in 70. They merge and are one league with two conferences, the NFL or the NFC national football conference and the AFC. And also beginning in 1968, uh, the AFL NFL films would start recording game footage for the AFL. So the AFL falls under the vaunted NFL films umbrella. The problem is there's 16 teams in the NFC and there's 10 in the AFC. And so three teams need to move and it's some teams that have been relatively successful in the NFL, including the Baltimore Colts who had just who had won two titles in the fifties with Unitas. They'd gone to the Super Bowl against the Jets in 68, obviously the famous Namath game. They move the Cleveland Browns who we talked about and the Pittsburgh Steelers who had been around really since almost since the beginning, since the early 1930s. So maybe not the three teams you would expect to move in this type of a merger. Yep. Yeah. And I believe, wasn't it where one of them, Cleveland or Pittsburgh kind of said, if you're going to go, we'll go. Yeah. Because it's Rooney. And then it's um, Art Modell with the Browns. Yeah. They kind of hold hands and take the jump together. Yeah. It says, I guess, originally they considered doing a drawing of like divisions and, and conferences and things like that. And it just wouldn't work. The, the point was reached by the end of the first owners meeting, which was recessed to allow Roselle to explore the feelings of 13 of the 16 NFL teams about moving to the AFL. The 49ers giants and Rams were locked into the NFL. Um, I'm guessing this means conferences, but you know what I mean? First condition was that, Oh, here we go. The first condition was that if the Browns moved, Pittsburgh would move with them into the same division. Over the years, the Browns and Steelers had built up a considerable rivalry. The second condition was that the Browns would be in the same division as the Cincinnati Bengals, the newest of the AFL expansion teams, which was managed by Paul Brown. Paul Brown, who had been forced out of Cleveland by Modell, and so they had that natural rivalry there, too. If you're Cleveland, you're thinking, okay, we get to take Pittsburgh with us if they'll go. And this is, again, the late 60s. Pittsburgh is not Pittsburgh at this point. They're a lowly franchise. So he goes, we'll have a rivalry with Pittsburgh. We'll have a rivalry with Cincinnati because it's in the same state. If the Rooney and the Sundan, who won the Steelers, met with Modell, they agreed. And then... um, 
the Colts wanted to get in the same division with the Jets. So that was the reason they were willing to go. I wanted to get in the same division as the Jets, Rosenblum explained. I think it's an instant rivalry of tremendous interest, and we have a score to settle. And then I think, <laughs> looking ahead, that most owners place too much importance on traditional rivalries. This is actually an interesting point. He says, in the last couple of years, you built up a tremendous rivalry with the Rams. But four or five years ago, the Rams game was just another game. It became important when the Rams began challenging for the championship. In the years to come, other rivalries will build the same way. In five years, no one will care or remembers what the rivalries were before the merger took place. That's actually a really forward-thinking point that he's making. And by the way, this article is from May of 1969. I thought when I was pulled this up, I thought it was a look-back article. Mm-hmm. Not. It's it's an article. It's a contemporaneous article from the time. And he's right. I, you know, I, A couple of years ago, I was talking about how the best rivalry in football at a time was the Seahawks and the 49ers who were never in the same league for 30 years. And then then it was the best rivalry in football for a long time. Steelers and the Ravens is probably the best rivalry in football now. And the Ravens didn't exist 20 years ago. You know what I mean? It's also interesting to hear Rosenblum talk about the rivalry with the Rams because five or six years later, he'd sell the Colts and buy the Rams. (laughs) I guess this is sort of the modern NFL, right? By yeah, 70, well, those, go ahead, are your 20, those are your 26 teams. They're all still the same names with the exception of the Oilers, I want to say. Yeah, obviously, the Browns thing happened. It was weird. Most of them are still in the same cities they were in 1970. A couple of exceptions. A couple of them have moved and moved back. But for the most part, yeah, same. That's that's the modern NFL. And in 76, you get the Bucks and the Seahawks. And we talked about this a little bit when we way back when we did our Tampa Bay episode, but they bring these two teams in and they do this really strange thing where in they place the Bucks in the AFC West and the Seahawks in the NFC West. And instead of playing sort of a traditional schedule, they play 13 of the teams, 13 of I guess it would be the other this this time you're at they play 13 of the teams yeah in they play each of the 13 other teams in their conference once and then I guess they must play one of them twice don't double up don't have any they don't they don't play their division teams twice they play each of the other teams in their conference once and then the following year they switch conferences <laughs> Seahawks go to the AFC West. The Buccaneers go to the NFC Central, and they do the same thing again. I think they, they play, play each other because in '76, oh, that would make the sense. Bucks played every AFC team, and then Seattle, and then that's where they stay until you know there's a there's more realignment. You know, in the 21st century, Seahawks the only team to be in the uh, NFC West twice. <laughs> they're there once in 76 <laughs> when they first joined, and then 30 years later when they moved. So just real quick on NFL expansion, that's your 28. And then in in the mid 90s, you go, you go 95, you get the Jaguars and the Panthers, and that brings them to 30. Browns move to Baltimore, become the Ravens. And then in the beginning part of the 21st century, although I guess the Browns rejoin in what, like 98, 99, 90, 99, 99. So then you're 31 teams. And then, and that, and cause then, that's when, that's when you have those few strange years when you have well, teams and that, with buys anytime, you know, in the first week of the season, teams have a buy. And that's what I was going to point out is the last thing on this. And then there's a couple of 
2002, the Texans join and the NFL finally restructures a badly needing restructure. So when the 76, when the league went to 26 teams in 76, the merger happens in 70 and they go to this three division each format. And then they just kind of start adding teams in places where there's only one, where there's, they're short a team. So, you know, once Seattle settles in the AFC West and Tampa settles in the NFC Central, you've got Tampa in the NFC Central with Detroit, Minnesota, Green Bay, and Chicago, and then Tampa. They, when they add Carolina, they add Carolina to the NFC West because there's only five, there's only four teams in the NFC West. So, and then coupled with the Rams moving to St. Louis, for a time, the NFC West was San Francisco, obviously a West Coast team. St. Louis, who's a really middle-of-the-country team, and then three teams in the southeastern United States, Carolina, Tampa Bay, and New Orleans. If I was San Francisco, I'd have been very pissed because I'd have been like, where where we're supposed to be. Not Tampa Bay, Phoenix. I'm sorry, uh, Atlanta. Atlanta, if I I said Tampa, I meant Atlanta. Yeah, Tampa Um, was in the central. Atlanta, New Orleans, and Carolina. And then you had, when that Baltimore team came in, or when Cleveland came back in, for a while, there were six teams in the AFC West or in the AFC Central. So when the there AFC, were 31. Yeah. So they were playing 10 of their 16 games against divisional teams. And it was really just too much. Teams were all over the place. They needed a restructuring. Now, they were always going to, people go like, well, why are the Cowboys in the East? Well, the Cowboys are in the East because they're the Cowboys and they want to be. The way the Cowboys got in the East in the first place was because they wanted to be in the same division with the New York media market, with the D.C. media market, and with the Philadelphia media market. That's the reason they're in that division. That was never going to change. But they moved Seattle back to the NFC West. So now Seattle, San Francisco, Arizona was in the East. So you had Mm – now I know they started in St. Louis, but for a long time you had the NFC East was – and depending on when you're talking about, you had this meat chopper of the Giants, Washington, Philadelphia, Dallas. And then you just beat the crap out of the Cardinals twice a year. So I think there was, what, one year where they tied for the division? Yeah. 98, I think. And they and they won. or Yeah, ninety. I think 98 and they actually won a first-round playoff game. So they the 2002 reset was very welcome. You ended up with eight divisions of four, mostly making geographical sense. I still... If it was totally from the AFC standpoint, I would put the Ravens in the east. I would move the Dolphins to the south and the Colts to the north. And I think you'd have a, a making a little more sense. But that's uh, that ship has sailed at this point. Here's the other thing, too, though. Baltimore is just as close to Pittsburgh as it is to some of those. other. Baltimore is just as close to Pittsburgh as it is to Buffalo or to. But it's more, about, it's more about those other teams. Yeah, no, you make a fair point, but I, I, they're never going to give up the Baltimore-Pittsburgh no, rivalry. No, 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 sure. no, I'm not saying they would, but uh, so the Colts of, in the South is the one that's out an outlier. Yeah, so th- maybe that's, that's of, why Indianapolis gets Super Bowls is because everybody thinks they're in the South. Well, they have a dome. <laughs> I know. Um, but, so uh, I just a couple of quick things on the merger and just sort of first of all, or I guess maybe not just first of all, the only other thing I would say is that. That and the Major League Baseball merger of the very early 20th century, the only two mergers where everybody joins. Nobody gets booted. Mm -hmm. The AFC, the ABA, which we talked about last year, 
those are quote unquote mergers, but those are more like acquisitions. Yeah. This is the last one that's that can really be considered a full on merger. Yeah. They took every team. I wanted to mention a couple of things on the AFL too. some innovations. They had names on the jerseys, which NFL teams never had before two point conversions, which took the NFL 25 years to adopt, but they did finally, and the other thing that I thought was important, and I don't think I ever knew this, was um, the AFL kept the official time on the scoreboard. And before oh, that, the, the NFL had always done it via stopwatch. And so you'd think, be at the game and not how much know how much time there was? I mean, that's how it was when I was in high school. And I know it was, you know, because like they'd be like, oh, don't ever look at the clock. Like the clock's not right. The, the, what's what's on the. Oh, uh, oh, 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 oh. So were, you had a scoreboard I, with the time. It just wasn't I official. I don't know if they did. They might have. They probably now you see, did. You see pictures and video and sometimes it's just a clock. It's not mm -hmm. digital. It's like a clock yeah, from yeah. 60 to all the way around. Mm -hmm. But OK, so there's something. It's just not what's official. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those I just thought were were kind of important innovations. So after this, I think it's just fun, it you know, to talk about because none of these other leagues ever merge. It's just kind of these offshoots that show up every ten years, and it's the first one they get is the World Football League, and this is only like five years after the merger is completed. You have this other league. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the World Football League and. I think you kind of get all you need to know about them when you go to their Wikipedia page and it says the World Football League was an American football league that played one full season in 1974 and most of its second in 1975. Although the league's proclaimed ambition was to bring American football onto a world stage, the farthest that they reached was placing a team in Honolulu, Hawaii. They folded halfway through the 1975 season. Real quick, while you're on their Wikipedia page and everybody's listening, go to it. The logo for the World Football League, A, is very 70s, but B is also like an, on an early season episode of The Simpsons when Homer was watching like a pregame <laughs> show. Yep. Doesn't it seem like that would have been the logo? Like with like some poorly drawn guy in a suit say like the episode where Lisa picks the games. Yes. That, that looks like the logo that would be on the screen. So the league was founded by Gary Davidson it said he had started the ABA and the WHA or he'd helped start them. So we certainly had some history with starting upstart leagues. We won't go into a lot of the details because again, these were leagues that at this point are taking on a well-established NFL Certainly of the, the two leagues that we're probably going to spend time on, a lot of time, this would be the one we'd spend the least time on. They, I think, were looking to play in the spring, most likely. The one thing they did that was kind of note was they signed some NFL players. They were able to get some NFL players to jump to the World Football League I think specifically didn't it really destroy the Dolphins franchise because they, they took a bunch of the Dolphins players. They did. And this is. They sign Larry Zonka, Jim Kick, who are basically the starting backfield of the 72 and 73 Dolphins. And then also Paul Warfield, who's a Hall of Fame receiver of the Dolphins as well. They play a 20 game season, which is crazy. <laughs> the 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 Birmingham 
Americans who are the team that wins the 1973 um, championship that, yeah, that's the team that wins. It's the World Bowl, and it's won by the Birmingham Americans, which is the team that has, I believe, the team that has Zonka and Kick and those guys. Let me just verify that. Oh, no, I'm sorry. They end up on the Memphis Southmen, not the... Not the Birmingham Americans. Go ahead. It just is. By the end of the first season, the, a lot of the guys who had signed with this league all uh, went to court and got their contracts nullified so they could go back to the NFL. And a lot of these guys sign with the team, but then they have to play out their option year with the NFL. So, for, specifically in Miami, Zonka, Kick, and Warfield. They sign with a team that they thought was going to be in Canada. They actually didn't realize they were originally supposed to be in Toronto. They're supposed to be called the Northmen. But then the um, Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau, the father of the current Prime Minister, Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau, announced that no U.S. based professional football league would be allowed in Canada because it would be competition with the CFL. And so they instead go to Memphis and become the Southmen. And I don't know if you've looked at this, but do you know what they were informally known as? No. The Memphis Grizzlies. Interesting. <laughs> so so Zonka and Kick and Warfield don't arrive in Memphis until 75 when the team is basically on its last legs. And yet guys aren't getting paid. There's all these issues that the same gentleman with the PFRA who wrote um, the article that I referenced before about the AAFC, Mr. Ken uh, Tomash, T-O-M-A-S-C-H. He did an article last year about where he interviewed three former players. One of the guys he interviewed was a gentleman by the name of Gary Danielson. I don't know if you're familiar with him. There's a play-by-play, a hockey play-by-play announcer by that name. He He's actually an, an, an college football announcer for CBS. Oh, okay, okay. Because he was the guy, he was always the guy that Francesa would have on every week to talk college football mm-hmm. on Friday. We'll have Gary Danielson at two. And so in the, he's interviewed and Ken Thomas asks him, did you get paid everything that you were supposed to? Gary Danielson laughs. No, no, my, my, no. <laughs> I was making $1,000 a game. We were playing 20 games. I got about five or six paychecks, and that was only because I was married, and my wife was the first one to the bank. Because many of them, not meant, not that many of them lasted, that didn't bounce. So, players were rigid, were literally trying to get to the bank first to cash their paychecks before their teammates, uh, especially by the second year. Couple of stories here, um, a bunch of stories actually. Let me just before you do that, let me just kind of give you a list of some of the teams here. Yeah, the Florida Blazers, who were based out of South Florida, they played in Miami, in, in Orlando. They played at the Citrus Bowl. In 75, they became the San Antonio Wings. Charlotte Hornets, Philadelphia Bell, Jacksonville Sharks, Memphis Southmen, Birmingham Americans, Birmingham, Alabama. Again, some of these are interesting because you have professional football teams in places like Birmingham, Alabama, Shreveport, Louisiana, Honolulu, Portland, Oregon, teams that places that would never have a team in football and in some cases in any professional sport ever again or before. 
So some interesting places in 75, uh, basically the same, although they do add the San Antonio team. So not exactly a world league like they were envisioning, but definitely a league that had some teams in some different places. It's funny. It feels like any time one of these rival leagues come in, Birmingham, Alabama is one of the first places they go. I wonder if one day you'll see an NFL team in Birmingham just because all the other leagues keep trying to put teams there. But anyway, a couple of stories, because that's really the World Football League, largely about stories. All right. Uh, Philadelphia Baylor's first two home games totaled 120,000 fans admitted that 100,000 of the tickets had been given away for free (laughs) or sold at significantly reduced, reduced prices. Uh, Six games into the NFL season, uh, the first season, the Detroit wheels were looking to move to Charlotte. Florida Blazers tried to move to Atlanta. Two franchises relocated mid September. Houston team moved to Shreveport. Uh, The New York team moved to Charlotte. The wheels moved one game to London, Ontario. The Portland Storms players were reportedly being fed by sympathetic local fans. The Hornets had their uniforms impounded for not paying the bill. <laughs> Detroit Wheels, on several occasions, the team was left without uniforms when they did not pay the cleaning bill. After several hotels and airlines went on unpaid, they were unable to fly to games or get a plane, a place to play for the state players without staying in advance. They arrived in Philadelphia to face the bell. The players discovered there were no medical supplies or tape available. <laughs> For them to play, there was an incident with John Matusak, who had jumped from the Oilers to play for the WFL's Houston, Texas. He was warming up before a game. Attorneys for the Oilers and federal marshals handed him a restraining order that barred him from playing. So he sat on the bench waving the restraining order around for the rest of the game, explaining why he couldn't play. What else do we have here? Who was that again? John Matusak. Yeah, okay. Okay, yeah, yeah. Playoff format was chaotic. Numerous formats were were thrown around. They made the the lower seed host a playoff game because they'd only the, the higher seed had sold less than a thousand tickets. So they made them um, they made the move. They almost didn't let the World Bowl be played because of taxes owed. Oh, that were, this is the one I was looking for. The Blazers franchise was sold off at a court ordered auction after it was discovered that Blazers owner Romy Loud had financed his team through selling cocaine. (laughs) 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 And a tax evasion scheme. Um, It also says the team that won the World Bowl, the Americans, only days after their World Bowl, their office furniture was repossessed. (laughs) So those are a lot of the great stories. An idea that 1975, somebody had an idea that the players should wear different colored pants based on their position. I don't know what that, I don't think that was going to save any, they're lucky they had any pants. Um, <laughs> the other thing that's interesting is that you, you can get a list of guys who jumped, but most of them never actually ended up going yeah. for one reason or another. So there's all sorts of hall of famers on this list. Kenny Stabler and Daryl LaMonica, who's not a hall of famer. Curly Culp, who was a defensive tackle with the the Chiefs in the 60s and made a bunch of Pro Bowls. Most of these guys, they just they just never go. I don't know. Mm-hmm. My guess is each one of them has its their sort of individual stories. I think one thing that we kind of have learned with this episode is that, you know, this is just a very broad brush. Every single one of these leagues could kind of be their own episode. And maybe that's something we'll do one mm-hmm. day. But there's all Rayfield Wright, who it's funny, actually, um, 
I actually the other day had um, even though it's only August 31st, I, I started typing up the in memoriam sheet and Rayfield Wright, who just died this year, was a tackle with the Cowboys Hall of Famer. He jumped most of these guys, with the exception of the three Miami guys. And I guess um, briefly, John Matusak, <laughs> most of these Elsie Greenwood, uh, who's a great player, defensive member of the Steel Curtain. A lot of these guys sign contracts, but for one reason or another, they never end up actually going and by the time they would have been able to go, the league is folded. So it's not. But yeah. And so they kind of just go and you hear stories. The legacy from a sort of 30,000 feet football point of view is that the exit of Zonka, Kick and Warfield brings an end to the Dolphins sort of budding dynasty and starting in 74, the Steelers become the dominant team of the AFC and remember remain that way for pretty much the rest of the seventies. And so if you're looking for a legacy of the WFL, I would say that would probably be it. So I guess we go to the next, the next league uh, would be to worth talking about would be the USFL, right? Yeah. And I think this is kind of the last one that's worth any sort of a deep dive because it's the only one that really ends up mattering. And before we start, I just, there's no way to talk about this without talking a decent amount about Donald Trump as the owner of the New Jersey Generals. So we obviously try to avoid anything political on this show and we will continue to. But he's obviously a big figure in this story. So there's really no way to not mention him. So I just figured I would address that right at the start. And I watched the 30 for 30 on this. Have you ever seen the 30 for 30 on this? Small potatoes. Yeah. I've seen, yeah, I've seen clips. I don't think I've seen the whole thing, but. Yeah. And again, I think it's trying to stay away from the politics, but you know, this was, this was done in like 2009. So this was long before, you know, Trump was anything but just a celebrity. And it's just the interviews with him, the interview with him is just hilarious because it's just like, it's everything you would think an interview with him about this topic would be, but um, including a quote, if God wanted football in the spring, he wouldn't have invented baseball. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good quote. So I guess like the USFL comes about in, I think it's what, 1980? First season's 83, I think. Okay. And they do decently well. You know, they're, they're, it's spring football. They start. In 1983, with how many teams do they have? It's a. I know by their second year, they're they they. That's one of the other things that they sort of do wrong, is that they they have um they, they expand too quick. They're they have fir- twelve teams their first year, if I'm adding this correctly. Yeah, and again, Birmingham, the Boston Breakers. Who do you know where they play? I did read that story. They played at Nickerson Field, right? They do, and they interview Bill Simmons as part of the 30 for 30, and it talks about being at a game. And keep in mind, this is the you know the Patriots. Sure, in 85, they make the Super Bowl, but it's one of the worst teams ever to make the Super Bowl, and they're playing in, in, a, in an old stadium in Foxborough, so it's exciting. You got NFL football in the city of Boston in the spring, and people are getting excited about that. Professional football. Yes, what did I say? NFL football, professional football. I'm sorry. Most you got a team in Oakland with the Raiders having just recently moved to L.A. But other than that, it it basically tracks and and a team in Birmingham because you got to have Birmingham. But it basically tracks with 
what you got, you know, with NFL cities, Philly, New Jersey, and then they're playing, you know, veteran stadium, giant stadium, RFK, silver dome, soldier field. You got a team in Tampa that Burt Reynolds is a part owner of, and that Steve Spurrier is the coach sun devil stadium, mile high stadium, LA Coliseum. I can only take this to mean that maybe the NFL didn't see this league as a threat at the beginning. If they're basically opening the door and letting them play in their stadiums. Yeah, it's possible. It says here that that was part of the plan was that the teams would play in large NFL caliber stadiums. Territorial draft was also a big part of it. So people would have collegiate stars from the, roughly the same area. They got the Heisman Trophy winner three years in a row to come to the USFL instead of to the NFL. And who was that? It was Herschel Walker, Doug Flutie, and then Mike Rozier or Rozier. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Right yeah. So, I mean, three years in a row, they, which is a big deal. They had TV through ABC and ESPN. And you, yeah, you see the opening clip and it's Keith Jackson doing it. Mm-hmm. Guy who'd done Super Bowls and World Series and had better been the original broadcaster on Monday Night Football. This was not a low rent organization. This was something to take seriously early on. They're throwing money at players. Steve Young, who I think was Steve Young, was the number one overall draft in the NFL and I think went to the USFL. Is that right? Uh, was he? I don't know if he was the number one overall draft pick, but I, I could check that. Um, but yeah, I'll they, take a look. The fact is guys' careers in the AFL come up when they talk about their careers. You know, you hear about them talking about Jim Kelly in the AFL or Reggie White. Yeah, Steve Young. So or Herschel Walker. So like it comes up and matters. He yeah, he, uh Steve Young played 84-85 for the LA Express. Let's see where he was drafted. Young was draft selected by the eleventh overall by the by, by the LA Express. But he was drafted number one. By oh, the, he was yeah he was drafted um by by the um okay he they thought he would be the first pick Bengals had the pick and so they had they had Ken Anderson as their quarterback they planned to have him planned to have Young sit behind Anderson and then that was when um the the manager of the Express the LA Express told Young that if they you know that he basically throws a ton of money at him to to sign him. And it was like, I, I've seen this somewhere. It was like a crazy amount of money that he was paid. He was, I think he was the highest paid guy in any of, in all of football that first year with the LA express. And then, you know, the Herschel Walker thing in New York was obviously a huge deal as well. Yep. Yeah, I think the thing, what we to talk about with the downfall of the USFL was switching to the fall. As early as 1984, the league began discussing the possibility of competing head-to-head with the NFL. Donald Trump and Chicago owner Eddie Einhorn were the two strongest proponents of it, thinking ultimately it would force a merger with the NFL, which seems short-sighted, and I don't think that's hindsight. Well, And you have to wonder, would there have been a third New York team? I mean, the generals were drawing decently well, but a third New York team would have been tough, especially when... They wouldn't have a stadium to play in because they were already the Jets were already, I guess, by I mean, the Jets didn't move to Giants Stadium until like 84. But from a Trump general's point of view, it, it's interesting to think how that would have worked or if it would have worked. So it says they did vote in August of 84 to start in the fall playing in the fall in 86. Right away, the Tampa Bay Bandits owner said he was going to pull his team out and organize a new spring football league, although he was sick and, and 
Yeah, John Bassett was his name. Yeah, he he was kind of the leader of the opposition. Pittsburgh Maulers said they were going to pull out rather than compete with the Steelers. The other interesting thing is the Washington Federals were about to be sold to a Miami-based group who had secured Howard Schnellenberger to leave the University of Miami and coach this USFL team. We talked um, about this when we did our in memoriam of Schnellenberger. Yep. The New Orleans Breakers and the Philadelphia Stars had to relocate. The Michigan Panthers said they would not play in the Detroit area in 1985. So basically all of these teams immediately got buyer's remorse and decided not to compete against their local markets. NFL team said ABC offered USFL a four-year, $175 million TV deal to play in the spring in 1986. There were just not enough spring football advocates left to accept those contracts. The owners in the league walked away from what averaged to $67 million per year starting in 86 to pursue victory over the NFL, a big part of which the linchpin really of it was we're going to sue the NFL. Uh, we're going to file an antitrust lawsuit against the NFL, claiming it had monopolies. And that was really the linchpin of the whole strategy to move to the fall. So yeah, and they, I guess they, they the goal was to sue the NFL and hope for a merger, I guess. But just the number of teams just continues mm-hmm. to be the the sticking point here. I, maybe Maybe some owners would have just rather have the damages, but then the damages in the merger probably wouldn't have both come. So... That's the part that the documentary and I give the documentary credit, but they focused mostly on the on the field stuff and then sort of the machination between Trump and the other owners. I just I don't see how I'm, uh, there's a there's a book by Jeff Perlman called Football for a Buck. And we can talk in a second about why that is the name of it. But my guess is the book, which I've not read yet, sort of delves into some of that more deeply. And basically what happens is basically the USFL wins in court. But then they're awarded a dollar, which is then tripled because the the award is tripled in a antitrust matter. So they end up with a three dollar uh, settlement and one of the six cents after the interest. Yeah. One of the aspects of the the 30 for 30 is the the, the filmmaker walking around with the check for three seventy six okay. with the interest. So just on the case, 27 of the league's 28 teams was named a co-defendant. The L.A. Raiders, Al Davis, was a major witness for the USFL uh, and was excluded from the lawsuit in exchange for his testimony. The jury did find that the NFL was a duly adjudicated illegal monopoly and that the NFL had willfully acquired and maintained monopoly status in professional football through predatory tactics, rejected the USFL's other claims, said they found the USFL had changed its strategy to a more risky goal of forcing a merger Made note of a memo Tad Taub had wrote about the dispute, which quoted the comic strip Pogo. We have met them enemy and he is us. They found the NFL did not attempt to force the USFL off television. And long story short, like you said, they win a Pyrrhic victory. One dollar increased to five, three seventy six after all was said and done. And that was the end of the USFL. And you wonder. I don't think it's reasonable to say, oh, the USFL would still exist today. But you wonder how much more juice they would have had if they'd stayed in the spring. Would the NFL have eventually gotten annoyed? Would they have? Who knows? But you think they probably could have made three, four more years at least, right? You would think so. And I think the other piece of that is it's really hard to give up momentum. Play in the spring of 85 and then you go away and say, 
well, we're not going to come back until a year and a half from now. I think any momentum that they thought might have had, they might have had went away, not just because they were going up against the NFL, but because they lost the momentum by disappearing for over a year. The only other thing I would mention is that there are people who push for the consideration of USFL stats, not even necessarily in the record books, but for players who are considered borderline Hall of Famers. Anthony Carter, who was a wide receiver, later was with the, the Vikings for a few years, gets talked about in that vein. Herschel Walker is the obvious one. In 85, his last year with the generals the last year of the league he rushes for 2411 yards which i think is the all-time single season record in any american professional football league so there's an argument that could be made that maybe when you're talking about a guy's legacy or his hall of fame case that maybe the usfl output should be considered there to some extent we are shockingly running long here since then i mean you have the xfl in 01 which kind of starts big and then peters out. The the problem with the XFL in 01 was they, the WWF was riding very high from a wrestling standpoint at the time. They were making a lot of money. It was sort of the height of the Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Rock, what they call the Attitude Era, if you follow wrestling. And they thought they would just kind of bring that attitude to people who they were trying to get to watch their product who weren't wrestling fans and it turned out just because people were wrestling fans didn't mean they were going to watch minor league football and other people who might have been receptive to it were turned off because of the sort of wrestling attitude of it all. So it was a huge financial disaster, really a black eye for the McMahon family and the World Wrestling Federation at the time, uh, Titan Sports, I guess. XFL being brought back in 2020 actually, by all accounts, was seen as a pretty positive uh, league. The six weeks it was operating, people liked some of the rules. I think they're going to end up with a rule. Ch- and by the way, that 01 league did end up with some rules that you saw in eventually in the NFL or, or, or even innovations in the way the game is. The camera work. The camera work, that kind of stuff. The um, camera on the catenary that they have. Yeah, and I mean, I think now it's just a drone. But, you know, it, the, that kind of thing, the overhead sort of behind the huddle camera, the 120 in 2020 was by all accounts being very well received. I think the kickoff rule they used in the XFL will ultimately be the NFL kickoff rule where the kicker kicks off from back where he kicks it off from. But the kickoff team is down 10 yards or 15 yards away from the receiving team. And that would it cut was, down on injuries, too, because guys aren't running to each other from 35, 40 yards that apart was, well, at full speed. Point. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was doing well in certain markets in St. Louis. It was like almost selling out the dome in St. Louis. And then COVID shut it down and, and they're attempting a resurgence. And I think 2023 at this point, they're going to try and bring it back under the ownership now of The Rock. The Alliance of American Football and any of these other leagues, they're lucky if they get through a year. They're really not professional leagues in any meaningful way yeah and it's funny though because even that aaf was popular too i think the lesson that you learn is that the appetite for football will be there the question is just whether these leagues can make enough money right off the bat pay the players and stay in business and uh the other one to just mention and it's 
sort of like the CFL. It's not direct competition and it barely even exists anymore. But I should mention that the Arena Football League was very, you know, was pretty popular for a long time. Started in the 80s, I believe, was the first year of the um, the first year of the league. 1986 grew to a, a league where, you know, like I remember when I was in school, Bobby owned the Philadelphia team and they played at the Wells Fargo Center. And, you know, there was people were, were you know, it was it was in a lot of big cities and things like that. Uh, they even had an AF2, which was like a minor league. And there was like 60 teams in that throughout the country. And then it just kind of crashed. And the league basically, they were as high as 19 teams in 2007. By 2009, they had suspended operations. And now it still exists, but there's literally like four teams. in the. I think there's six teams in the league, at least as of 2019. And I think there's oh, and the AFL is gone now. There's still an arena league because I know there's a team in Albany. They were doing well for a while with sort of a totally different thing. And I've been to a few of those games. And they were kind of fun. But I went uh, to one in D.C. a few yeah, years ago. It's was, it was kind of fun. But the, the, the main league, the AFL, crashed and barely, you know, limped along for a few years with half a dozen teams. But now it's totally gone. But the sport of arena football still, you know, exists. And you'll you'd see former NFL guys pop up on there every once in a while. I mean, Kurt Warner played in the Arena League. He's probably the most famous, you know, went on to a Hall of Fame mm-hmm. NFL career. It represents another option for guys who are trying in one format or another to keep their NFL careers going. And they're also bringing back the USFL in 2022. They brought it back already. They yeah. played this last year. They played all their games. It might have been in Alabama. They played all their games in one place. Exactly what they did is, yeah, they played all their games in Birmingham. And I know there was a lawsuit by um, led by Larry Zonka, apparently, who had been general manager of one of the original USFL teams. So, again, another one of these names that keeps popping up and Larry Zonka. So these leagues are always going to be out there. You're going to see them more in football than anywhere else, just because the the appetite, both from a fan point of view and from guys who are looking to continue their football careers when they can't make it into the NFL, you're going to continue to see these leagues pop up. And, but I just don't think they're just not going to have any staying power. I don't think, but yeah, I, I, I kind of think you're right. I, I have a hard time seeing anything lasting for a, a long enough period of time, but um, you know, that doesn't mean you can't enjoy it. Well, last I was going to, I was, I was watching some of those 2020 XFL games before, the world shut down but um yeah it's uh you know the nfl is not going to be facing any stiff competition anytime soon from anybody all right through quite a bit here tonight this was this was long but i think we covered a lot of interesting stories and some facts and kind of gave you an idea of how the league has evolved with expansion and uh rivalries that changed the landscape a little bit over the last hundred years yeah, There's, it, it was a very all-encompassing topic, so it understandably kind of spiderwebbed out into a million different directions. But, you know, when else are we going to talk about the World Football League and an owner? So it turns out you financed this team by selling cocaine, so you're not allowed to own this team anymore. Um, <laughs> so they sell it at auction like they would for a car that was seized in a drug <laughs> raid. All right. Well, we'll be back next time with another fun topic. But until then, I am Dan Newman. And I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network. 
your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.